Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me this week, I've got two guests. Angela Nagel is returning to the Dead Pundit Society. She came on last spring to talk about her book, which was fairly new at that time, called Kill All Normies. Joining her is Amber Ali Frost. Many of you will know Amber from her podcast exploits on Chapo Trap House and her journalism that appears regularly in outlets like The Baffler, Current Affairs, and many others. We're going to be talking about the fate of the dirtbag left, how to build an anti-culture warrior left, and uh, just kind of assessing the political moment that we're currently in right now. We, we have been in what many have called Nagelmania for the past year. Angela's book, Kill All Normies, has been sweeping the world by storm. Uh, Whether you love it, whether you hate it, it has provoked a lot of strong opinions. And in my my perspective, it has completely changed the game. It has initiated a whole new conversation around topics of the culture wars, the alt-right, and the fate of the left and what we ought to do to face down all of the barbarities in society and build socialism for regular-ass people. It's no stretch to say that my show would not be quite what it is without that book, without that encounter. My impulse to to build socialism for normies uh, comes from that project. And so Angela is due, I think, a lot of credit for that. So I'm excited to get her back on the show and chat. One last thing before we get to the interview. Angela's book has been adapted into a documentary by one of my previous guests and friend of the show, Nando Vila. Nando is a producer and a host over at Fusion TV. He is part of the project Trumpland, which is a documentary series that is an award-winning uh, project coming out of Fusion TV. And uh, Nando uh, is on top of this thing. It's called Kill All Normies, and it features a lot of people that you all and Dead Pundit Society Land will find very familiar. Not only Angela uh, Nagel is on there. She's narrating throughout the entire thing. Amber Ali Frost uh, has some really brilliant commentary uh, around halfway through. Jesse Single, who I featured several weeks ago, is talking uh, quite a bit about the alt-right and the left and the the Twitter sphere and Tumblr politics and all the rest of it. My man Adolph Reed Jr., the professor himself, is on there talking about the left and the culture wars and all the rest of it. So a lot of familiar faces on that documentary project. It aired on Fusion TV just a couple of days ago. It should be available online for purchase and for viewing I'm not quite sure about the details of that, but I will post a link to that on the show notes. You're not going to want to miss it. So before I bring you the interview, I'm going to give you a little clip from that documentary just to kind of wet your whistle about the culture wars and uh, just to kind of preface our discussion I'm going to have uh, with Angela and Amber. So stay tuned for that. Hit up the Patreon. I've got a B-side dropping in a couple of days. It's a Q&A with Amber and Angela where we get into the weeds about the culture wars history and politics and socialism and all the rest of it. You're not going to want to miss that. Go to patreon.com slash dead pundits 
and subscribe at $5 a month or more to get access. All right, here's the clip with the interview to follow. Enjoy. According to the new documentary, young men these days are faced with two dramatically different internets. One internet says you are congenitally racist. You have already participated in rape culture by consuming the dominant media. You have offended someone 10 times by speaking in a common language that you would use with any person on the street. And then you have this other internet that is full of rebellious kind of comedy. You are, in fact, encouraged to indulge maybe some of your most forbidden interests. And which internet are you going to choose? I think that they are quite strategically clever and they know that they can potentially drive a wedge where there is already um, a bit of tension on the left. How do we move forward from here as a country? Nagel says the solution lies not on the extremes, but instead with the rest of us, the so-called normies. Joining me on the line, I've got Angela Nagel, a guest that I had on the show at the early phases of Dead Planet Society, and Amber Ali Frost, who many of you will know from Chapo Trap House and her abundant uh, articles that she has written out there. Uh, how are you doing today? Quite well. Thanks for joining me on the show. I'm glad to have you on, Angela. You're, you've uh, made a home in New York City recently. Uh, how's that going for you so far? You're you're, you're new to the states. Uh, what's that like? Yeah, it's it's great to be back. I mean, I was here um, last summer, and I'm yeah, I'm lost most of the time. But um, it's actually very nice. Uh, everyone was like pissed off that it was snowing, and to me, it was like a winter wonderland arriving because. Weather in Ireland is much more samey. Spongy. Yeah. <laughs> moist, perhaps. Could we say it's just damp and moist? <laughs> well, like there was sponge. lovely white snow around when I arrived, so that was nice. It hasn't gotten ugly and dirty yet. Amber, I hear uh, it's recently just was uh, dropped, like, what, yesterday? That Michael Rechtenwald is suing you. What the hell's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh... Well, you'll have to talk to my lawyer about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess he's just not a big advocate of free speech. What are you going to do? <laughs> right, right. So you, you commented to a, a, a reporter from Fox News reached out to you and, and you, you responded with LOL. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I got a little bit more than that. So I'm honored, I'd say. And that's probably the best that we can do at this yeah. point. Well, so. you're not the bourgeois press, so you, you get an exclusive and that is it. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Uh, exclusive on DPS. So who, who is Michael Rechtenwald? Uh, Rectum, Rectumwald, as he's uh, affectionately known. <laughs> who is Michael Rectumwald? Um, and, and what, what is really going, what the hell is going on there? I hate to, you know, talk about like bullshit gossip to open the show, but isn't that's that's what we do. So... What's um, happening there? Well, he's a, a professor at NYU, um, and yeah, I, I mean, I'm literally being sued by him, and I'm, I'm not supposed to say anything. <laughs> uh, me Angela, and, and uh, what, what has she told you that you could tell me about? <laughs> 
my entire knowledge of how the law works comes from movies, so I'm not 100% sure if I should actually apply that here. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if me saying it vicariously counts or not. Well, that goes totally against uh, the the what what folks normally do when they run their mouths and have diarrhea uh, spew everywhere uh, about facts that they know nothing about. Yeah. Um, uh, Here is what I will say. Um, it's going to be uh, a, a wacky buddy comedy when George Sicarello Marr is working at the same campus as Michael Rechtenwald. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. It's, it's, it's a world I could have only dreamed of. <laughs> I uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we'll get your comment on that when the case has been thrown out and laughed at uh, by the general public and, and the judge and all the rest of them. Uh, Michael Rechtenwald suing Amber Lee Frost for what is it? Libel? Is it libel? Is that? Is that? I mean, fuck is going defamation. On? Defamation. Uh, for allegedly uh, calling him a right wing misogynist. That's ridiculous. How many people on Twitter could get sued like right now? <laughs> well, like, like I said, I mean, like the thing about the thing about these kind of uh, culture warriors that are obsessed with the SJWs are—they um, claim to be very into free speech, but you know, it's it's all it's all self-serving. Yeah, no yeah, one can I, call you a name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I eagerly await the. Um, kind of breathless defenses in Breitbart and elsewhere of uh, Amber's right to free speech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're uh, coming to bat for me. I'm sure those are forthcoming. No, no doubt uh, about that. So we were talking about the culture wars. Uh, Nagel mania 2017 is behind us, but uh, uh, so <laughs> we, we <laughs> That's been underway for quite some time. Red London uh, has has remarked uh, the, the the epoch of Nagelmania. We're 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 past 2017, but it's going to continue. Uh, your your book was resonated, I think, with many on the left for its critique of the culture wars that are being waged both on the right and the left. Uh, but Mark Fisher, uh, the late Mark Fisher, really kicked off that debate in a big way in his book uh, called Capitalist Realism. And uh, a very influential essay that came out uh, around 2013, which was called Exiting the Vampire Castle. Um, we're just recently coming up on the uh, one-year anniversary of uh, Mark Fisher's uh, tragic suicide. He suffered from uh, depression and mental illness for most of his adult life, we're told. He wrote about it actually very beautifully too. He really did, and I think, yeah, for those of you who are interested, I'll try to find some of those articles and, and put it up on the show notes. He really delved into the, the social and political and economic aspects of, of, of depression in, in, a, in a really important way that's impacted a lot of people. Um, Nina Power wrote a really moving tribute to him um, on the, the one-year anniversary of his passing that I'll, I'll link to as well. Angela, what kind of effect did Mark Fisher uh, have on you when you wrote Kill All Normies? I mean, he, that must have been looming large in your mind. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I remember when I got a message from uh, actually a mutual friend of me and Amber's um, that, you know, um, and heard the news that he had died. I um, met Mark um at this uh, kind of like a, 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 a conference that used to go on that was organized by a bunch of people who are now in Momentum, uh, which was in Manchester. And the, the organizing group is called Spring. And the idea was kind of interesting. Um, 
it was kind of gathering up a lot of people, very like-minded kind of, um, and who were slightly adrift. Some of them had left, you know, different, like the SWP and other organizations. This was before the the, the rape thing. Um, and it, he was on the organizing committee, I think, and so was I. I, I did it remotely from, from Ireland, so I didn't get to meet him much in terms of organizing it. But I do remember speaking to him at the first one I went to, and the first thing I noticed about him was, you know, for somebody who had real kind of... Um, stature I guess in the world of kind of um you know Marxism and and theory and so on he was very um a little bit bashful I would say and kind of um uh you know a very gentle kind of person uh the next year I was due to speak on the same panel as him and I was really looking forward to it because I'd been reading his stuff and I liked it so much and he didn't show up and he i was told uh by the organizers that his not being there was linked to his depression in some way he was having a hard mm. time and he couldn't come um and then i didn't see him again until um until i heard that the news so uh yeah it had a big impact and um you know i guess it highlighted kind of that sense that like the best people on the left were either getting kicked out or getting turned off or getting otherwise kind of booted out, you know, and, right. uh, and the worst people were kind of flourishing and that was quite disgusting to me. And in particular, you know, if he had been saying those things and he was like a tough person, I would have felt less maybe emotionally invested in it. But the fact that he wasn't like that and he, you know, we're, we all kind of are forced because of the horrible media environment that we're in. If you're in the world of ideas, if you're writing or anything, we're all forced to be constantly playing this chess game where we're, you know, weighing up, like, what can I get away with here? You know, what, what, how can I make the right move? He wasn't like that. He just actually was trying to be very genuine Mm -hmm. and he really got punished for it. And that's a terrible state of affairs. So I felt very emotional about it. And when, when he died and people, people the usual people were gloating online afterwards i was just uh just so upset and enraged by it i had to include it in the book it was really quite disgusting uh the the people who were sort of uh dancing on his grave uh, so to speak uh given the fact that he suffered so much for his interventions uh, on the left he opened up the exiting the vampire castle essay with a passage, a brief uh, biographical passage uh, that, that, I, I, that really resonated with me in 2013. I had been on the left for about five years. I had seen my fair share of intra-organizational uh, uh, identity battles and just, just ego wars uh, where it didn't seem like there was anything at stake in those feuds beyond just power trips. Uh, and the like, in which a lot, of, a lot of these things ultimately collapsed the organizations themselves. And uh, as I've written elsewhere, uh, it almost seemed to me that those folks were quite happy. They were quite pleased with themselves that the organization that they were a part of had dissolved because it was almost as if it's it's better that there was no movement at all than like an imperfect one. Mm. Well, the wreckers. (laughs) Wreckers. Wreckers is one way to put it. You've caught hell for that. We're going to get into that very soon. Uh, It makes you like Stalin. Did I catch hell? Uh, I saw some hell. We're, we're going to get there. Uh, Mark opens up the essay. Um, this summer, 
I seriously considered withdrawing from any involvement in politics. Exhausted through overwork, incapable of productive activity, I found myself drifting through social networks, feeling my depression and exhaustion increasing. So it was very clear that his uh, activity on the left was a, a, a big contributor to his fatigue and exhaustion and depression. Um, which, like you say, uh, Angela, makes that story all the more tragic. Amber, you lived through that time as well, and one of the outcomes was the dirtbag left that formed in the midst of the Democratic Party primaries. Mm-hmm. So I want to get to uh, some of the dogpiling that's going on in terms of what we just talked about with you later in the show. But for let's let's preface all of that by going back to that moment, because the dirtbag left was really a response I think, in a, in a kind of uh, <laughs> unexpected way that it emerged online and in uh, you know concrete politics. What the hell was the dirtbag left and what, what did it signify? Um, well, it actually came up around uh, Chapo. And, and I had made, I think, a series of tweets describing myself as a, as a dirtbag and um, – think Chapo had just started and I wasn't involved in the project yet or whatever and I think I I uh, described them as like Howard Stern for the dirtbag left or something like that now that would have been spring summer of 2016 is that right um I think so yeah 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 it would have been yeah um and it kind of caught on a little bit and people, I think, you know, went through my Twitter and, um, you know, grabbed onto these kind of, um, I guess, uh, aesthetic representations of, of what it means to be a dirtbag, which is, you know, fun. And it's a part of kind of, um, the way culture forms organically and whatever, me eating a bucket of fried chicken drunk on my stoop or something. Um, <laughs> But I think in principle, what it described was um, a sort of impious, um, unsanctimonious mm. uh, gravitation towards, you know, class politics and politics of, you know, legitimate social justice, meaning, um, you know, not sort of langu- language policing or microaggression or this kind of, um, I guess, campus created uh pseudo left subculture but um something kind of actually organic and i and i would say that as someone who's been a part of i think more substantial subcultures before who's been involved in you know the punk rock scene or whatever you know dirtbag left is even more um you know ephemeral and 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 fleeting than any of those i mean it's even Mm. more like borderless or whatever but generally, I think it described uh, a group of people who um, rejected liberal pieties and instead gravitated towards uh, the, I guess, I- intent and the concrete material politics uh, of, of our time and place. I mean, socialists. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. So, Angela, you open up and you uh, kill all normies, which I presume all of my readers have because you've sold like 50 bajillion copies at this <laughs> point. Um, you open that book w- with, with a in- really interesting kind of tale 
talking about the transformation of of sort of uh, liberal politics or whatever, and the story with Dick's out for Harambe. <laughs> so, in what respect does that? You can maybe sort of recount that briefly. <laughs> what respect does the dirtbag left this kind of like uh, 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 almost like logical uh, result of the kind of like overly sappy moralist earnestness that we saw with like um uh fuck what was the uh, what was it save the what was the child soldier movement that we that uh save the girls what was the shit oh coney oh coney yeah. coney what, what was what was the slogan it was like um something about child soldiers i can't remember it was plastered on the bus that toured the fucking country with this mm. This fucking whack job. Uh, I remember Stop Coney. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop was the Coney, big thing. Yeah. yeah. And then Coney 2012 was the. So we moved from Coney to Dick's Out for Harambe. Uh, in what respect do you think that the dirtbag left was a similar kind of move away from the overly earnest, uh, you know, call out culture? Um, yeah, I mean, God, it actually feels like so long ago. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that. I guess it was like. Um, a little kind of cultural intervention um, to just open up another space uh, for um, people on the left to be, uh, yeah, just a little bit less, you know, frightened of um, saying the wrong thing and, you know, stuff like that. Because it did feel very much like the online kind of right was colonizing that space at the time. Right. 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 And there, there, I mean, I guess more importantly, you know, focusing on the cultural element, the sort of material and political element underlying all of this is that there wouldn't have been a mass of people to decide that they wanted to stop being so fucking moralistic all the time. Uh, if, if it wasn't for the kind of political and economic transformations that were happening at that time, mm-hmm. uh, coming out of Occupy and the great recession, uh, Bernie Sanders phenomenon. There was this mass of people who were who were newly radicalizing, who were coming to the left, being more normies, I would say, perhaps than the people who were sort of stuck in these little uh, hyper sectarian uber Marxist enclaves, right? Yeah, and I guess the the real importance of that kind of thing, ultimately, beyond the kind of pose, I guess, is that, um, y- you know, it's you always like particularly you know if you're on the left you always have this sort of uh embarrassing feeling that like or you always think like could i bring my most normal non-political friend to this event <laughs> you know and you want the answer to be yes right. um and the thing is if there are so i guess it's a way of kind of discouraging weird crank oversensitive uh kind of behavior as a norm you know it's like creating a space for something else being able to talk to people who don't know what you know Mm. Mm -hmm. so the dirtbag left really was was welcomed by a a lot of people judging by the success of chapo alone it's pretty evident that 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 was clearly the case um it's pretty clear that if, without Chapo, I mean, I, I would not, I wouldn't be here. There wouldn't be a market for the kind of uh, socialist ideas that permeate on, you know, on social media and, and on podcasts in particular. Um, so we're still riding that wave in, in a really significant way. But it's also safe to say that uh, there have been some significant 
transformations and the might we even say former dirtbag left mm-hmm. the late dirtbag left <laughs> the, the late r.i.p uh, dirtbag left that i think all of us miss so much it was kind of like a simpler time right pour, um, some, pour some of my 40 out for the dirt bag left. i mean Fuck like me. first of all you know something like that when you when you coin a term like that, like the purpose of neologism, when it's at its best, is to identify something that doesn't have a name so that people can, you know, point to it and say that's what that is and maybe talk about it and, and figure out what it is. That doesn't necessarily mean you're um, crystallizing something that's supposed to exist forever. Mm-hmm. I think what happened – and our talk to a lot of DSA people about this with a lot of people who are like, oh, and Dirtbag Left is they joined DSA and they realized that in in an ideal situation, um, you know, left politics is not a subculture. It's a, it's a broad working class movement. And, you know, you should be embarrassed if uh, being a, a leftist is your identity like it's not a shortcut to a personality or friends. Like being I, a socialist isn't a hobby. <laughs> no, it's not. I shouldn't just, list that in my uh, interests. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's a, a worldview and a political orientation, but you know it, it doesn't it doesn't make you interesting. Um, and I don't know. I think I think it's frankly a positive thing that it's dead. Um, because it means people are trying to, uh, you know, materialize those politics rather than sort of, uh, crawl into some sort of like identitarian version of socialism. Um, I mean, what kind of a fucking loser are you that, you know, being a socialist is the most interesting thing about you? (laughs) She means you, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Do you do you feel attacked by this relatable content? I feel complete. You're talking to a guy who wakes up and does this shit all day until he goes to bed. And might I just might I just say that I think the two of you are kind of the same. So so okay, given the three of us, let's. I mean, let's let's be honest here. Let's 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 be honest. Okay, all three of us wake up. I mean, that's not true. We have hobbies for God's sakes, but. We spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about politics, writing about politics, doing politics. What? So, so then let me turn that on you, Amber. What is it mm-hmm. exactly? Then it's not. So it can't. It can't just necessarily be about how much time you spend doing this shit. Because if it was, my God, I'd right, be the biggest right. fucking loser on the planet. Which sure, I am, I'm not saying but for different don't. reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not saying don't you know commit uh, you know to socialist politics by any means. Right. Uh, but you know the idea if you're thinking of this as sort of a subculture or like I joined a a socialist organization or I identify as a socialist because I want to be around other socialists. I mean, your your job is to at the very least be a good representative uh, for, you know, socialism as, as, as a political ideology um, and as an economic system. So the idea that you would face inward you know, primarily toward other socialists mm-hmm. is is counterproductive to the project. Um, you should be able to talk to people. You should be in person. And also, it should not be your only thing. And I, I said this before, and I, I, I don't know if it, you know, made on or whatever, but, you know, 
I've been in DSA for like 10 years and it was always such a, such a, a, a strange idiosyncrasy about me because I was in these, you know, whatever, um, arty circles where people were in bands or, you know, painted or, you know, did woodworking or whatever. And they're like, Hello, Thurber, she's a socialist. Isn't that weird? That's so esoteric. And, um, you know, it was always like, uh, the least interesting thing about me to most of these people, because it's not, it's not a reflection of your character. It's not a reflection of your interests. It's, um, it's a reflection of uh, a worldview and, um, you know, a, a political goal. Um, so I, I do think there's definitely kind of a honeymoon period where you discover all this stuff and you get really into the, you know, whatever, maybe memes or, um, iconography of it. And if you're lucky, you won't get a fist like tattooed, like, you know, like like on your arm or whatever. I can't guarantee I won't get a socialist tattoo at some point, but, um, but I definitely waited because you should never make two decisions rashly. Put 10 years in the fucking movement before you go and get that hammer and sickle or whatever the fuck you're getting like on your, your low back or whatever. Right, right, right. Oh, that would be amazing. Mr. Rose tramp stamp. The optics of that are, (laughs) don't do it. Don't do it. The symbolism is shifting so rapidly. The fisted rose. Yeah, fifty <laughs> is bound to mean who knows what the hell it's going to mean like twenty years from yeah, now. Yeah, don't get do that it. and then go to Berlin. You have no idea what kind of attention you're going to get. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think it's important to remember that this is, by its very nature, not intended to spawn a sect. And subculture kind of exists uh, for people with shared esoteric interests. And the left has for so long been just like this ideological ghetto. And the whole idea is to crawl out of the ghetto Mm -hmm. and to make socialism broadly popular, to have a broad working class movement. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think that's happening and it's really encouraging. And, and I, I, people are, people come up to me and ask me like, aren't you mad? Cause you were like into this like 10 years ago when no one was. And I'm like, no, I only ever wanted people to, to like this. Like that, that's such a nerdy, pathetic subculture view of politics. If you're really committed to socialism, you want people to come to it and you, you welcome them with open arms, even when they had like dumb ideas before. Yeah, that's like getting pissed off because you were a hate breed fan like 15 years ago before yeah, exactly. they did Warped Tour or whatever. It's like get a fucking life. <laughs> well, and what you're seeing happen too is a lot of people who were involved in kind of left politics when it was more marginal suddenly fleeing it and sometimes going right wing because that's the new so-called subversive thing. Mm-hmm. I was never into socialism because it was subversive. I have actual subversive things that I'm into culturally and artistically. <laughs> I was into socialism because I believe in an egalitarian world and a, and a democratic economy. Yeah, right. Right on, right on. So, Angela, you, you talk uh, quite a bit in your book about subcultures. There's an extensive literature out there uh, about subcultures. Um, for those who spend way too much time in the dusty books, you'll all be familiar with that. Tell us a little bit about um, what you found in your research and in, in, in analyzing uh, the left from, say, LiveJournal and Tumblr and all the rest of it um, into, into, say, D, the, the, the era of DSA, uh, the post 
dirtbag left. What role do you think subcultures play there, given you know Twitter and, and all the other types of technologies that we have that, that produce this kind of like insular uh, subculture? Well, I mean, the main reason that I brought the subcultures literature into the book was that when I was trying to write about these kind of online spaces that were, uh, I mean, everything under the sun is is now sort of called misogyny, but but genuinely misogynist kind of subcultures where they were really just primarily about just venting your absolute hatred of women uh, all day, every day. And anyway, so I was looking at this kind of stuff emerging online. And the weird thing is this was in the days of the very cyber utopian kind of moment that I describe in the book. So at the time, the stuff that was being written about 4chan and about trolling in particular was um, was actually kind of celebrating it. It was saying, oh, this is like a, a cool counterculture. It's like the Dadaists. It's like, you know, all these kind of avant-garde art movements. And trolling is actually this really interesting, complex kind mm. of... Um, you know, cultural trick that's being played on culture sort of jamming on normies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. By like the way, jamming. I hate to interject here and interrupt the both of you, but I work primarily with men, so I figured out that's the only way to get your word in. But I have to say, how fucking what an indictment it is that it only academics thought. Oh, this is so cool mm. and subversive. It's like, yeah, the least cool people in the world. Yeah, yeah, thinks yeah think that this is cool and subversive <laughs> only the three of us would know only <laughs> the postmodern academy uh, well you know as michael Rechtingwald has pointed out i don't even have an advanced degree but <laughs> <laughs> only only the academy would look at these fucking nerds online and be like wow what what rebels mm. people are really going to relate with this shit but, yeah. but what was so interesting yeah. to me right was i was looking at this and i was saying hang on there's something wrong here because in the academic environment, even though, you know, I was someone who was on the left and who identifies, identified as a feminist and so on, I was kind of going, why is it that every movie, every work of literature, every work of philosophy, basically every cultural creation ever made by a sort of dead white male is being declared uh, sexist and misogynist, but this subculture that literally does nothing but spew their stories of how much they hate women is being called subversive and interesting and countercultural. Right, right. So I was trying to figure that out. And that's really where that came from. Uh, and, you know, the reason that basically I think that people who, who were very um, impressed by the kind of hacker stuff and that was coming from 4chan and they thought you know like hackers are like the new you know the left has been like wandering around searching for a new subject like a you know revolutionary subject for decades at this point but at that time it's like oh hackers they'll be the new uh people that will you know bring about a better world this and is <laughs> this is the era of anonymous and yeah exactly that, that yeah yeah, yeah. julian assange when he went before he was a fucking nut job i don't he, know maybe he's always been a nut job who knows yeah but i like, like the idea that like Vivek Shiver like knocked the legs out from under like post-colonial studies so they're like oh shit we have to find something else <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's no longer uh, the post-colonial subject it's people who are on the internet Virgins yeah on the internet. so that's what was happening so I was going you know something about this doesn't make sense how can I explain the fact that in 
an environment where in like a you know in an academic environment in a humanities environment where people are really sensitive about issues of gender and sexism and so on why is it that this is being given this incredibly soft treatment this particular space and so then i stumbled across the subcultures kind of you know literature which which if you read it kind of um chronologically show that they had had this big debate uh, years before about music subcultures. So mm. the Birmingham School and people like that wrote, uh, were basically fanboys, essentially, right? I mean, they're very oh, smart, yeah. interesting people, and they, uh, they, and they wrote really good stuff, but, but they were kind of fans. So Dick Hebdige was, did not have a very nuanced look uh, of, of subcultures. He really did think that they were going to make a, a much greater impact, and they did. I would say um, Adam Curtis has a much, more, a much better, uh, lasting, evergreen view of subcultures. Perhaps, I will say this, though. Hebdige... Uh, I think he was the best of them. Yes, absolutely. And, and Hebdige acknowledged that the kind of, um, I don't know, working class fantasy of punk rock was largely that. And he did kind of demystify these, Oh, just, you know, kids in their parents' garage or whatever. And he pointed out that a lot of these people were like, you know, uh, if art school, middle-class students, which I think was, um, I mean, that was very welcome to me. Mm. They were upwardly mobile. He looked at yeah. the, he looked at the political economic uh, sort of basis. And whatever, of I went through a dumb meathead oi phase mainly because I liked <laughs> the men. But like, but at, at the same time, it's uh, it, in, in terms of. I mean, I, I I when I first started reading Angela's stuff, the first thing I I thought of was Hebdige, mm-hmm. um, because I think as 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 soft as he was on this stuff, he did at the very least complicate the fantasy mm. of, of what these things right, were. Right, right. Yeah, and, and now it's pure it's pure canonization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Hebdige was the best of them by far. There was much more crude kind of uh, stuff out there, which which at the time, uh, which was really uh, noble savages with guitars. Yeah, exactly. It was very much like <laughs> let's interpret everything that you know like punks and mods and so on do right. as resistance. Yeah. Uh, so, so it was that whole idea of like resistance through ritual. And, uh, and this was also part of a kind of cultural studies thing, which was like, well, we're not going to do any actual resistance. So we'll just do it through culture. <laughs> and we'll just in- interpret like soaps as like resistance against capitalism or something like that. Right. This was an um, era of left retreat and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. De- and defeat. Yeah. But so the, the, yeah. So the really interesting thing then was that uh, Angela McRobbie and Sarah Thornton, who's really interesting. And I, one thing I love about Sarah Thornton is she wrote this book, which was called Club Cultures. And it basically just like put a bomb into the middle of the whole subcultures literature. And then she just wandered off and wrote about art and like just left <laughs> academia. It was brilliant. Um, uh, and, you know, so she's such an intriguing figure. Um, but yeah, she, so her critique in particular was very much that like, you know, the whole literature on subcultures is written by fans. And so their, their inclination is always to try to read into everything they do as a form of resistance, as something countercultural. And I thought, ah, that's exactly what's going on here. Well, I think also one of the best things I ever read, uh, by an artist about this, this 
uh, phenomenon of, you know, whatever art is resistance was from Billy Idol. Mm. And he said, punk didn't do anything. All that screaming and we still got Thatcher. (laughs) And it was like this very beautiful thing where it's like, wow, even the artists themselves have realized that their project uh, did not meet up to their utopian standards. And you still have these cultural studies people. Mm, It's extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I saw in one of these kind of like... um, you know, historical photograph, like Facebook pages or something like that, a thing recently, which was an anti-hippie protest. And I guess it must have been in the McCarthy era, because all the signs said things like, long hair equals communism and stuff like that. Okay. (laughs) And uh, and I I loved it. I was like, I like those people. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I did think, you know... I I, also am a part of the anti-hippie left. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I also thought, you know, this is something the right always gets so wrong countercultures were one of the most useful soft power weapons against communism. Right, right. Countercultures sold the idea of individualism and not just an individualism that was sort of abstract and in the in the realm of like uh, Locke or whatever, mm-hmm. but an individualism that pe- that got into people's souls that you could actually create yourself as a completely unique individual and you could express that through niche consumerism and counterculture and so on. That was the thing. Like if you look at the very dying days of the Soviet Union, one of the features of it, and I think actually Adam Curtis touches on this too, is that young people in Russia were like, you know, all we've got is like ballet and, you know, Shostakovich and look at these cool <laughs> Westerners. They've got, they've got hippies <laughs> and they actually did envy the West, you know, uh, in, because they got to, you know, have free love and, uh, and express themselves and and kind of go into that hedonistic world. So that's definitely, I'm very suspicious of countercultures, um, you know, for this reason. I think they're, they're such a useful soft power tool against um, anything that involves ultimately sacrifice. Collectivism, certainly too. And you see this too with um, like the history of, you know, these you know, artistic CIA projects mm. in America. You know, when you start reading about who funded Jackson Pollock yeah. and, and yeah. things like that. It is very strange, though, because people saw this happening a very long time ago, and you go back and you read Christopher Lash or something mm. like that, and it's like, this is deranged. Mm. How did he see this then? It's, like, clearly looming over us now. Mm. Um, but uh, especially, like, sort of the New Age stuff, which has infected, like, the, the new robber barons in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's all that's all hippie individualist bullshit. Mm. Right, right, right. So Christopher Lash wrote the famous uh, book, uh, The Culture of Narcissism, focusing on the kind of, like, hyper-individualism that, uh, you know, of course, uh, he had a slightly different uh, critique. His trajectory of his critique was slightly different than ours. But but nonetheless, it's it's key. I mean, I guess one thing we can certainly say is that countercultures are, are, are uh, purport themselves to be uh, focused on a, uh, cultural and social, sometimes even political transformation. Uh, but the but the the rug gets pulled out from underneath of them because they in the, in the course of trying to produce that world, uh, they 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 end up tragically sort of like paving the ground for like what we now call neoliberalism. This hyper commodified, hyper individuated, totally anti collectivized uh, society. Mm, it's a really yeah. it's a really tragic tale that we should learn from rather than sort of reproducing. I would say. Mm. I remember very specifically. Um, my um, 
uh, Republican grandfather get, giving me a set of pencils on them that said, like, Amber, you can do anything, which is the most kind of millennial childhood thing you could possibly experience it's like well no i clearly can't do anything <laughs> i mean it's it's very sweet and and loving and everything um but the idea that everyone is special rather than everyone is important mm. is i think uh, such a marker of our kind of generation i don't really believe in generational politics as a as a vanguard or anything but it is true that um this kind of bourgeois individualism has been completely internalized mm. at this point. Right, right. Yeah, and the internalization is a very sad thing because I don't. If you've grown up in that environment, I don't know if you can actually rid yourself of it. You know, it might, might just be yeah. that it has to go, and then people who come up under you, you know, feel differently. But I was very fascinated. I mean, I, Lena Dunham, right, has become this kind of figure of the, <laughs> the most horrifying, like... All right, I should have bought more booze. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, but, but just let me let me do this, right? You can, <laughs> you can get rid of it afterwards if it's total Angela, garbage. take this as, like, the highest compliment. I would cut any other guest I had on the show off at this point. I would cut your mic. But because, it's, because I'm totally enthralled in Nagel Mania, I'm going to let you try Let's do it. Let's do it. Fuck yeah. Okay, okay. So, right. Lena Dunham is obviously a kind of ridiculous figure and is kind of just amusingly awful in all kinds of ways. But one thing I, I was, you know, I watched Girls and I, I remember thinking there's something in this. Like, she is both, she is doing something and parodying it at the same time. That shouldn't be possible, but somehow it seems to be. And basically what it's I... It's a meta self-awareness. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I don't know how you could... Well, anyway, I mean, I think the idea is basically that show was about the exhaustion of a particular vision of the good life. Uh, and it was precisely about the exhaustion of it because it was like... So it was fulfill yourself through creativity which can be married to the corporate world. Um, and so it was precisely the kind of marriage of... Um, you know, uh, the, the, the counterculture and the corporate world that like Fred Turner wrote this great book about um, uh, this, which Adam Curtis draws upon. But, you know, it's well documented that the, the origins of Silicon Valley were actually in the back to the land counterculture and stuff like that. So, but anyway, it was this kind of, to me, what it was about was like these desperate young people trying to live up to this vision of the good life and not really having any other vision because all the previous ones had been dispensed with and, and this was kind of all that was left. And, and actually what it, what it produced was, um, you know, uh, stagnant wages, uh, total social atomization, uh, totally dehumanizing, like, uh, you know, a totally dehumanizing social world of individualism. Reversals of a lot of the advances we had, like the 40-hour work week. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. The idea that you had vacation, the yeah. idea that you were done with working when you went home. Exactly, and instead it was like, oh, please let me stay in longer, and please let me do another free internship, and eventually I'll get there. Yeah. You know, and it was like, what are we trying to get to? That was what the show was about. It was like this thing that we're all striving to get to that we're – we're just pouring our in 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 the case of the show parents uh you know actually earned <laughs> wealth into it is not turning into anything and it's just a ladder to nowhere and that was a generational thing that was very important and again counterculture 
was the absolute handmaiden of softening what was actually a you know a case of um just uh, the total degradation of working conditions right so let me let's clear i want to i want to clarify this i think both of you are very well aware of these dynamics that i'm about to do but but for my guests both for folks who don't know or haven't thought this through and for folks who are screaming into their smartphones right now as they're listening to this discussion it it so i think more what we we're can't really hear ta- you just fyi get mad i have no <laughs> idea how mad you are sorry <laughs> scream into the void i don't even have twitter me neither Fuck now. Me, wait till <laughs> wait wait till they get to Reddit. Wait till they get their fingers on their. their I've little, never their looked at Reddit. <laughs> Stay mad. Wait, you mean that the Chapo people aren't just on Reddit twenty four seven, and that's just a totally fucking unhinged band of lunatics who are. I wouldn't sub, know because I don't thing. look at it except when my friend Pat Smith sent me screen grabs of them asking, "What race is Amber?" <laughs> What race is Amber Doe? Yeah. Uh, Do you not want to just settle this question? Because no, <laughs> because I'm mad that they're mad that they want to know. Like yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. why? What do you think it will teach? What do you think you will know once you know this? They just they want to know how know. how much they can privilege check you if they don't know oh, your yeah. race. That's what they it don't is. Know, they don't know how valuable your input is. That's if, what it if, is. If they don't know your race, but in a purely social understanding <laughs> of race. Like, isn't that literally what it is, the way the world treats you? Yeah. So if you look at me and can't figure it out, then that's how I walk around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then who gives a shit, for fuck's sake? Yeah. I'm very... Weird losers? Yeah, I'm quite (laughs) sure that I'm quite racially pure, which means inbred and also survived the famine, which means my ancestors probably robbed the food out of other people's <laughs> mouths. You're, you're, means you're, hardy, scrapper. you're a scrapper. You're a scrapper. Hardy stock there. Angela yeah. has got some hardy stock. I actually looked into there. my family a little bit over Christmas and I, and I found out that on my dad's side, um, my family were actually Norman invaders and I'm probably related to Edmund Burke. Whoa. Holy whoa. Yeah. There's well, only, I mean, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. No, there's just one gigantic Nagel family, as far as I can tell, who are Norman invaders. Jesus Christ, and, and, Angela. And, you, just, you just gave your haters, like, so much more I know, like, ammunition. I know. Like, but, a and, genetic but, link to Edmund Burke now. Well, it's if, like it's, if there are any secret, like, uh, debating society Dick Ebo-wearing guys who are listening to this, I, I doubt that's going to happen. But if there are, they're probably very jealous. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> well, that's I uh, we actually are having a... Um, a uh, uh, 23 and me chapo so you do actually get to measure my skull one day oh great hell yes <laughs> i actually think there is a fantasy out there about amber which is that she is racially sami yeah 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 <laughs> they really they really want me to be uh the weirdest looking white person uh they're like okay well it's the uh it's the ethnic minority but of the nords so it's okay yeah they're the indigenous people but you know of of the the Europeans, so it's fine. Right. right. Well, let them enjoy that for a little while longer. Right. I have no fucking idea what I was talking about before we went off. This planet, but <laughs> well, we're it. drinking, so I've enjoyed it. It's, it's going to go. I was going to say downhill, but clearly it's going to go uphill. We were getting a little no, bit too this serious is great. for a moment. So, so what I want to do? So here, I want I, I want to cover this before we we move on because I do want to move on. But there, I think there are a lot of really well-intentioned. Now, some of them aren't well-intended. Some of them are just pricks. Let's be honest about this for a minute. But there are a lot of well-intentioned fans of the show, patrons perhaps even, good solid socialists out there who would respond to our criticisms of cultures and subcultures by saying, yeah, 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 but wait a minute. 
two things. There's the there's the uh, the uh, gotcha, the classic gotcha of like, well, you're fighting for socialism for regular ass people, but here you are in your little podcast world talking in this echo chamber and with your specialized knowledge and your blah 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 blah. So that's one rebuttal, or at least faux rebuttal, I would say, uh, to to the discussion that we're having here. And my response, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is like. Yeah, I mean, I get that all the time because my show openly fights, argues for socialism for regular ass people. Now, that means a lot of things. Actually, it doesn't. It means a very particular thing that I'm talking about. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. But I also believe in the developing uh, like cadres, right? People who actually want to go out and, and, and make uh, socialism their thing and, and they want to gain like specialized knowledge and, and – and, and, surround themselves with other people that they can learn from and so absolutely and so on and so i mean so i believe right? that i believe in outwardly facing cadre that's the difference is if you're if you're looking outward or if you're all staring at each other and having like an internal conversation you're all fucking each other let's be more precise let's be more precise about what's really God, a circle don't make us have a mental image of that <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, people are Jesus Christ. Download Tender, people. <laughs> get laid like get laid like normies do. Okay, yeah, you don't have yeah. to go join DSA to get laid. They're Although, happier. if that's what you're doing, I don't know. No <laughs> judgment. I'm just saying. I'm just. Well, by definition, though, I mean this is the problem. If you are a person who writes full time, like Brendan Behan said, critics are like eunuchs at an orgy. Um, and if you're if you're a writer, you. Uh, no, if you're a cultural critic, that's the, unfortunately the position you're in. I'm sorry, did yeah. you just bust out the Brendan Van? Like that's the, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we had our one super Irish moment that everyone can yeah. feel very quaint about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't do that again. <laughs> Please, do, Frankie Gaffney talked quite a, quite a bit about Brendan actually when he was on the show. Uh, so uh, I've looked. Into oh my god, him, I adore uh, Frankie. Yeah. Okay, shout I'll, out to Frankie. I'm only going shout to, out to reference Gaffney. Love that man. Yeah, only English. Uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, references from here. No, on. fuck that. Let's go. I, we love the Irish on the Dead Punnett Society. Are you kidding me? Like I, I want to have all of that. Every single Irish person I can find. That's the main difference between Chapo and, and yeah. <laughs> I actually enjoy. I, I, I enjoy the uh, the negging of uh, <laughs> the Irish that goes on on Chapo. <laughs> That's because the Irish have a sense of humor. <laughs> I think uh, I'm going to go all totally like, you know, like ethnic, uh, like uh, essentialist here and say, like, I think the Irish are in, in many ways like superior culturally, <laughs> genetically, genetically superior, spiritually, yeah. certainly sexually, I would say, uh, based on my limited experience. All no, right. That's not Super true. No, no, I have to say, yeah. I mean, thank you. But we have heads that look like potatoes. <laughs> yeah, well, they, if you eat enough potatoes, you know, yeah, it's, it's bound ter- to manifest. It's, it's, it's a very embarrassing irony of our history that we have ended up with heads that look like potatoes. <laughs> Wait, what were we talking about? Brendan Dean uh, wrote, wrote uh, said something about eunuchs and cultural critics oh, yeah. and, and subcultures and building cadres and all that. That is yeah. a great quote. But so it's a wonderful quote. And but the, but the problem is, like when I saw it, I thought, oh, that's hilarious. But then I thought, oh wait, that's me, uh, because you know, if you are a critic, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of classes that didn't exist in the days of Marx and Engels. Mm. Um, I mean, they were kind of, I suppose, you know of that weird kind of almost lumpen proletarian sort of weird writing 
you know, people who relied on the generosity of others in many ways. Um, but now we have Bohemian this, slackers. Yeah, totally. But now we have this kind of it's been a little bit more brought into the economy in a sense that you can live as a freelance writer. Um, But nonetheless, if you do that for work, um, you're, you know, you're you're in a very compromised position. Matt Brunig talked about this. Yeah. And it's like one of the few moments when he broke out of his uh, stoic autism and we had a very intimate (laughs) moment together. (laughs) Ableism. Ableism, Amber. We won't have it on the DPS. I mean, he's literally on the spectrum. I don't know what you want me to do. Like, he's trouble reading. He has trouble reading facial cues. That's just, <laughs> um, but, um, I, he, he brought this up once where he, I, and it was, I was actually premature, but in 2016, I was like, this is going to be the first year I have where I don't struggle to pay my rent. Mm. Um, and it, it wasn't, it was 2017, mm. but, but still I was, you know, I was like very excited and I, and I had like a small identity crisis because as much as I, believe that class is an identity um so much of who i am has historically been oriented around precarity Mm. and my relationship to wage labor Mm. and he was like Mm. yeah that happened to me it was difficult (laughs) (laughs) which is like you know a a, a, you know an emotional outpouring for someone like matt brunig and um and well, he's like, doing well for himself, and, right? Right. And, and so you find yourself in this really well. He got of, he got his you know legs knocked out from under him for uh, correctly identifying Neeratanen as a scumbag, um, yeah. and and they went after him and took his job. Uh, but you know, and that must have been a relief for him. No, <laughs> uh, but uh, but it is like this very weird thing where um, you know suddenly for the first time you're you're secure and, and you're not struggling and it's, and it's obviously superior and, and you're like, Oh, this is, this is great. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not constantly loomed over by, by this sense of, of struggle and, and anxiety and inse- you know, economic insecurity. Um, uh, but at the same time now suddenly you're suspect because it's like, well, you know, you're, you know, you're on the other side or whatever. Um, but luckily, luckily, uh, the I will definitely say something that completely destroys my career, and then I will be, <laughs> and then I will be uh, poor again, and then I will be secure. <laughs> mm. I think, though, if if that happens to any of us, uh, the plan is uh, there: go and live in uh, beautiful rural Italy. Yeah, no, in that's a, what in we're a gonna townhouse. do, right? Hell because yes. you can buy those for the price of like a hallway in uh, Dublin New or New York or Dublin, yeah. because Dublin has a horrible rent crisis. But yeah. it's it's very true though, because actually the fluctuations, particularly if you're a freelance person, your income fluctuates massively. So you experience times of lots of income, and you're just like blowing it and being you know stupid with it, and then periods where you're very worried and very broke and um it actually makes you in a weird way more aware of uh class as a moving factor in historical events because um you know one of the things that really kind of uh, animates me is my total uh rage about the 
exploitation of people by landlords mm-hmm. and just the complete yeah. unfairness of the fact that if you just inherit a property through having done absolutely nothing mm. you just get to live off of that and squeeze half of people's income uh that is just so unjust they and, truly are parasites yeah they really are and like that uh, anti-royalism is in your blood wouldn't you <laughs> Uh, and even well, I mean, I, it's in ours too. Americans yeah, are yeah. historically yeah. very anti-royal. Don't yeah. tread on me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear you. The, I actually thought there was a really funny thing one time on Twitter. Some guy who was like, I guess he was like an old light guy with like loads of American flags in a row for some reason in his like tw- Twitter bio, and he said something funny like, uh, "Oh, the British should." Uh, reoccupy Ireland or something like that. It's like, you're a republic, you fucking idiot. <laughs> like, you kicked out the Brits. Well, this is also why, conversely, um, like, alt-right people in countries that are not America are cucks. Like, if you're wearing a Make America Great Again hat mm. in another country, yeah. you are, in fact, a cuck. Yeah, 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 that's true, yeah. Not to be all by your logic, but still, it's an internal consistency. (laughs) That is a by your logic point. But also, even like one of the figures that, you know, on the French New Right, who's kind of loved by by the the more pretentious characters in the old right, Alain de Benoit, talked about a lot about Americanization. Um, And a funny thing about the old right is they're kind of Americanizing the right in Europe. Mm-hmm. Like loads of people, I get contacted constantly by um, journalists in like Denmark and the Netherlands and so on, wanting to know about the book and wanting to know about the alt right. And I'm kind of thinking, you've already got your own far right. Why do you need this one? Yeah, and right, and right. to be honest, a more institutionally accepted uh, oh yeah far right. I, I think I was, I was low an option. A- I was going to say a better far right, but goddamn, that's probably not something. That's yeah, yeah. it's not the best language. Uh, uh, but you but, know what I mean, right? I mean, I think they have the the the, the potential for more success. Yeah, well, than, loan you know. option had like the best defense of of kind of um, uh, of America that I I think you can give, and it was a series of tweets, and I'm absolutely butchering them, but Alex Nichols, um, and he said, I'm. I, I cannot handle fucking Europeans being like, America, you are so racist. It's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, like, but like, you have like the, uh, you know, party for Nazism and soccer hooliganism in your parliament. So mm. Shut the fuck up. Mm. At the very least, our racism has to be curbed by neoliberalism, mm. which is at the very least, again, a more subtle and um, cosmopolitan. cosmopolitan and less like, horrifyingly brutal kind of uh, expression of white nationalism. Mm. And I don't know, like for fuck's sake, why do you, what do you care about? Our right is ridiculous. I had a friend who just wrote a thing about neo-Nazism in America and it was extremely difficult because she had a British uh, editor Mm. and she's like, my, my friend, she grew up, she's not white, she grew up in Idaho and, um, in the 90s, when uh, the, the militia movements, which are still to this day, like the most <laughs> active and, and, and terrifying far-right movements in America, not the alt-right. Condolences uh, to your friend. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Jesus Christ. Right. And, um, and she had this 
British editor who really thought that like the alt right was the sudden emergence of mm. of a new thing in America, and you know it's not it's not Germany in in the twenties. It's not even London in the eighties for fuck's sake. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, definitely, and and in in the West, I mean. Um, America is the most diverse and the most tolerant internally, certainly. I mean, you could certainly argue something quite damning about foreign policy. That's because it's, you know, the, the, the it has been the great kind of superpower, certainly in the 20th century, latter half of the 20th century. But it's very true. Like, I mean, when Europeans go far right, they they really go far right. And the the far right in France is, you know... Uh, far more numerous uh, and extreme than... But I remember a friend of mine being like, oh, let's watch Top Gear mm. when he lived with me. And um, I was like, isn't that like a car show? And he's like this very uh, kind of effete, effete designer guy. And um, and and I was like, why, why would we watch that? Are you like a secret car guy? He's like, no, absolutely. But they're so reactionary. And mm. I'm like... Okay, whatever. So I expected to see, like, this very kind of subtle, um, you know, American-style racism. Mm. Um, and I think the the first episode we watched, you saw Jeremy, what's his name? Jeremy Racism. Mm. Uh, like, <laughs> like, being like, you expect me to drive in a sedan assembled by some ele- inept Malaysian in the jungle. And I was like, holy oh, shit. Wow. And it was like... You can literally not say that yeah. on American yeah. television. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like that is the kind of racism that we're like, yeah, no, that's absurd. It, frankly, it interferes with our internationalism and cosmopolitanism, mm-hmm. which are obviously flawed concepts and vulnerable to racism, certainly. But at the very least, represent a kind of like liberal extension mm-hmm. that negates statements like that Mm. and i was like holy shit you're allowed to be that kind of racist on just Mm. english tv and you just could that show is like so popular Mm. and it was on forever Mm. yeah 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 there's no filter they they haven't gone through the the experience of like kind of like cosmopolitan wokeness that has served uh, the agenda of like say american style globalization and neoliberalism and and all the rest of it uh, yeah at the very least you have to be you have to pretend to not be racist in america Mm. and if you're a millionaire in america you have to pretend to be a good person if you're a millionaire in britain you can just let a dog rip a fox to death for no reason Mm. uh and you're just like well i on the one hand it's uh it's, it's highly unethical. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I'm very rich. And they just think that's their entire justification. That's just what they do. Yeah, I, I, that's another thing, too. I mean, um, you know, actually, Christopher Hitchens was quite, I mean, for all his many flaws, uh, Christopher Hitchens was quite funny in this. He obviously took a lot of pleasure in standing up for, I guess, what have rightly become quite mainstream values in America. So, you know, for example, when I came to New York for the first time, I I, I was born in America, but I was born in Texas. So um, I came here for the first time as an adult pretty recently. And, you know, the first time I saw, for example, the Statue of Liberty, I remember having a kind of totally, you know, just like earnest, embarrassing 
you know, teary-eyed kind of moment where I actually you're, thought... You were Hannah Arendt, basically. Totally. Well, I just thought, you know, this is the place where, you know, Ellis Island, all these people came and, you know, we'll never know their stories. And, you know, this is actually an incredibly beautiful idea. And I actually don't like. So you were Hannah Arendt, okay? But I don't. Jesus Christ! But you know, I get it. I get it. I said Ellis Island, the whole the mythos and the the hopes and the dreams and the expectations. Yeah, but you know, just because that just because that narrative has been hijacked by sort of really corny people doesn't mean that it's not a beautiful idea. And this goes back to the subcultures thing because if you want something, the goal is to be is for your ideas to be hegemonic. You know, and the ideas that were the inspiration behind the Statue of Liberty and, you know, bringing it all the way from Paris to New York uh, were once very radical ideas and they became hegemonic. And that's ultimately the goal. Right, right, right. So we're coming back full circle to the cadres debate. That was the first thing. The first thing is to say, okay, Adam, you want socialism for regular ass people. Why aren't you down there at the Panera or the Walmart uh, rather than talking on the microphone to other lefties across the country? Uh, so we, we've, we've debunked that, the need for certain types of outward facing cadres. The second, uh, the second one is, I think, a, a more difficult challenge, which is to say like, maybe we need to be developing a certain kind, a specific kind of socialist culture. And a lot of people, particularly inside of DSA, um, argue against our critique, say, among others, of subcultures by saying, no, 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 you're, you're, you've got it exactly wrong. You've got it exactly opposite, right? We need to be developing these rich, distinctly socialist cultures for people to feel at home in because that's a key step towards, you know, say, winning socialism or whatever. Uh, what did the two of you make of that? Well, look, I had a socialist culture um you know or i was exposed to a socialist culture prior to joining dsa and that has become my because i come from working class people like if you're going to say what the socialist culture is i mean traditionally and historically i have people who come uh from railroads manufacturing and coal for fuck's sake like I'm sorry, these people are not going to remind you of yourself. Mm. And also, the, those those industries look entirely different than they did during um, sort of the height of uh, what you would call socialist culture in the U.S. Um, but I, I don't know if it's actually going to um, get published, but uh, Marcus Barnett wrote this very beautiful thing about um, uh, socialism kind of being born out of uh, working class culture, and it's not a it's not a cart before the horse thing, in my opinion. And I am maybe to my own detriment a, a little overly uh, averse to the idea of culture creation because I think culture should be more organic. Mm. But there has been historically a, a precedent for socialist culture that has been kind of effective and but it hasn't necessarily been these kind of bohemians it hasn't been necessarily the sort of thing you would um you would consider uh subcultural a lot of times and no one wants to admit this but a lot of times it has been working class people wanting the things that upper class people had Hmm. um for example higher education or um what we would short term as high art 
people saying that I mean, one of the great uh, legacies of the Soviet Union is their, like, you know, the ballet, the symphony, um, you know, the arts and sciences. They should be for everyone, mm. you know. Right, right. Um, and I remember being a, a bit, you know, beatific about about working class um, purity or culture or whatever at some point. And I remember very specifically um, kind of doing away with it the first time I had a truffle oil hmm. and being like, you know what? <laughs> Fuck it. Rich people is, have some delicious. good stuff. Mm. We <laughs> yeah. like, we want their stuff. If it's yeah. good, rich people probably already have it. Yes, they have some bad ideas, but this shit, this is good as hell. <laughs> and also, you know, I always loved, yeah, like I did ballet, and uh, I always loved that stuff. And I think there's certain very grand ideas and certain very grand productions, and, and taking those for us um, should be a, a project of, uh, of socialism. Mm. Truffle oil socialism. I actually also think yeah. that... Um, at the risk, at the risk of being like a sounding like a sectarian Irish person again, I this is nothing to do with that, right? But I I do think that Catholic cultures have, have held. Oh, <laughs> no wait, uh, have, no. Let's relitigate this as the most Protestant person. Just hear me out, right? Am they, I going to become a target of of uh, a particular uh, you know a domestic terrorist group? Uh, the, if you uh, finish this sentence. Uh, ca- <laughs> Catholic socialist Twitter will uh, defend me if that happens. Um, <laughs> all the trad cath Irish are there Irish trad? I don't know. If no, they're all sorry. converts. They and they all have really waspy names. Yeah, all the all the that is the most annoying thing. Like when I see these people, I'm like, bitch, I know you're Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you ain't no Catholic. A, yeah, and I and I always think if you knew how like uncultivated and dumb our Catholics are in Ireland. <laughs> you would not want... Because all the first things people are like incredibly like smart and hyper intellectual and like, you know, really smart people, but many of them are converts. But anyway, um, what I was going to say was that one of the very few kind of positive things I think about that you find in kind of Catholic cultures is that they did kind of hang on to this sense that fine art and high art was for the people. So people often take the piss out of the the way in which Catholics like replicate like, you know, the Pieta and their ashtrays and things like that. But it is a way of kind of saying like uh, when I was growing up, like in my grandparents' house, there were miniatures of all the great kind of beautiful, you know, uh, Renaissance art and sculpture and stuff like that. And their sense was very much that like this is for the people and this is we don't feel like this is not. That, that we can't access this or that this is elite in some way. I think that the iconoclasm of Protestantism, which was really progressive and positive in some ways, it had lots of, you know, really great manifestations, had that one flaw, which was that it did, it did kind of say like art is for this like obscurantist, like elite weird group of people who need to be cut off and you have a direct relationship with God and you simplify everything. Yeah. I do think that the, it it becomes like this balance. Like how do you proclaim the emperor naked while still Mm. um, not be, uh, while still avoiding kind of anti-intellectualism or, you know, um, anti, I guess, aestheticism mm. or whatever. Right, right. And I, I, I mean, whatever I, I am, uh, like a 
I realize the older I get that I'm more affected by the insane Protestant sect I, I my grandparents uh, took me to for now on. And I have like this weird, like both Catholic and Jewish envy um, mm. at this point, because it's like, wow, we really are like a terrible little historical ideology that has set back the workers movement in America. But at the same time, the um, kind of, there is some element of the anti-authoritarianism that is mm. good. Mm. Yeah, um, sure. We sure. went way too far, though. We became the trots of Christianity, and we must be stopped. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. We must the be trots stopped. Hate Amber, the trots hate me enough, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I, I, we already went down this rabbit hole, so I have to share this. I'll put it up in the show notes if people for the, for the hyper nerds out there. But GM Tamash is a Hungarian philosopher and a great Marxist, a really heroic guy. He stood up against the Stalinists, and, and now he's being attacked by the, the literal Nazis in that country who are ruling a, a large swaths of the government uh, named GM Tamash. He has an essay called Telling the Truth About Class, and he, he actually says there's a, there's a really important split in the socialist movement after Marx, uh, which he calls what what you all are explaining. He calls Rous- Rousseauian socialism, mm. mm-hmm. which is it's uh, it, it 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 sort of it's this uh, a veneration of impoverishment yes. that is the result of capitalist exploitation, yes. and it's the reification of the results of capitalist exploitation. And what we want to do is we want to overcome that. Yes, okay, we're champions of the working class. Most of us are in the working class, but you know what? Jesus Christ, I'm going to say it. Fuck the working class. Being the working class sucks. It sucks to be fucking hungry and broke and anxious and not be able to enjoy motherfucking truffle butter when you want to. Isn't that yeah, yeah. truffle? I've never had it before. I don't even know what it is. Oil. It's oil. Oh, truffle oil. Oil. Truffle oil. They put the black and they, they oh, saturate. Truffle butter is that disgusting rap the song, oil isn't it? And, and, and it's, it's so good. It's really pungent. Yeah. It doesn't taste like anything else. So Google truffle butter rap song if you're interested. <laughs> um, I mean, I do think also like the um, kind of deification of suffering. Again, this is a very yeah. Protestant thing. If That's you very, ever go uh, Mother back, Teresa, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, let's That's let's different. not go crazy. Um, <laughs> but the uh, I, I I think um, the really excellent adapted Protestant hymns that. They turned into labor songs in America. Hmm. Um, the big one is uh, uh, Pie in the Sky, I think, which was a Joe, Joe Hill adaptation. And they took um, In the Sweet By and By, which was you know a very Protestant hymn, where it's just and, – and you realize, too, so many Protestant hymns are about, like, it's going to be so great when I die. Um, and there's no sense of having – like pleasure joy on earth Hmm. and it's this idea that you work yourself to death and then you'll be rewarded after this is why i understand suicide bombers honestly i'm not even kidding (laughs) when you when they talk about like oh you know islam is this like incredibly like a catastrophic religion i'm like no man i totally get that as like an evangelical protestant uh i get understanding that there's nothing beautiful or pleasurable here for you on this earth. Hmm. And the greatest thing you can do is to perform some sort of service that may accelerate your, um, you know, venture into the afterlife where you will in fact be rewarded. And the Joe Hill song, it took in the sweet by and by, which is like, you know, one of these many very constant genre of Protestant hymns where it's like, well, when I die, it'll be better. Hmm. And they took, uh, they sang, there'll be pie in the sky when you die. Hmm. And it's like, uh, uh, 
work all day, live on hay. There'll be pie in the sky when you die. Hmm. Yeah. And it becomes like this very, um, I mean, it's it, it, we internalize it basically as much as any of these suicide bombers do, where it's like, uh, look, you don't have to fight for what's for a life now, uh, because you will be rewarded. And if your life is truly terrible, that kind of makes sense to you. Right. Um, and this is just something that I think has not been, uh, you know, ideological within like the Catholic or, mm. or the Jewish, uh, kind of, um, manifestations of political culture in America, at least, because it's less conducive to that kind of thing. There's actually a, a very interesting, um, sermon, I guess, uh, by Ian Paisley, who was, um, uh, you know, a Northern Irish, uh, very prominent anti-Catholic kind of figure, um, during the troubles and he By the way, I love that it's like it's so euphemistic they just call it the troubles <laughs> eh, it's a I bit of trouble I love that I do <laughs> we also call oh, it you know back in the troubles I'm like ah we fuck also I was in the wrong place <laughs> we also called uh, the World War II the emergency <laughs> Oh, God, I love it so much. Yeah, it's just so euphemistic. It's so cute. Um, uh, Angela, I'm going to move into your old place. Yeah. A little bit please. of an emergency. You won't be able to afford it. Dublin places. is as expensive as New York. It's fucking yeah, awful. It's, when are we going to go to like rural uh, Italy and gentrify the fuck out of it? Having like a bunch of like freelancers moving, you know, artists and musicians. We'll be but, the new expats. Great. But yeah. in Paisley's thing, it's on YouTube, and I think it's called something like The Meaning of Fundamentalism. And he actually describes fundamentalism uh, in a way that you can, exactly as Amber was saying, kind of broadly apply. But it, but the, certainly to the contemporary ear, it, it you think immediately of evangelical Protestantism and uh, Islamism, and uh, it's very much about the idea that. I mean, it's hard to even capture it. You would just have to see it. It's it's very powerful, and. Um, it's very much about the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter if people spit at you and hate you. When they when people hate you, that means you're right. And that means you're pure. And that means you're really speaking the word of God. And all these other people who are trying to distract you and shame you are wrong. And it's really powerful stuff. It's kind know? of fatalism, but yeah. also it's, like a very reassuring thing mm. to be told. And for mm. extremely poor Protestants, say like, you know, like my father's family in Appalachia, what a relief that must be mm. to be told like, okay, well, you know, you are extremely marginalized um, you know, you, your life looks like nothing but suffering, but Hey, when you die, it's going to rule. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like Let's talk about how that you're one. Absolutely. Let's talk about how that is um, uh, manifested in, in left culture and subcultures, because it's well, like, easy coats is the best uh, example. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No question there. I mean, it's sort of fatalism, uh, but moving in even maybe even closer to like, say our circles, the circles that we travel in. Um, not the, uh, you know, I don't know if either one of you get paid 40 G's for a speaking engagement. Not yet. Anyway, <laughs> for both of you, uh, after getting, after the Rechtenwald, uh, in Nagel mania, you know, we may, we may see that, <laughs> but in any case, people say in, in the Twitter sphere and in, on, in the, in the kind of like heated, overly heated, uh, sectarian DSA, uh, adjacent, 
uh, uh, debates where you can tie that kind of uh, 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 that that search for purity, that search for uh, uh, righteousness with a certain kind of like misanthropy, right? Um, a certain kind of it, it, sure people people will hate because people are bad or something like that, but right, and, and, and know, it doesn't matter what they think because we're right, God damn it! It's a search. Yeah. It's this kind of like self assured righteousness that 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 is not concerned uh, about the normies. And I know Angela, you get a lot of shit for that too. For like, well, fuck normies. They're they're you know they're the bads. We're the goods. Uh, yeah. What do we care about them? That that kind of thing. Hmm. I, I mean, I do think also have a generally, again, as like kind of a, you know, bohemian layabout subcultural person, mercurial artistic type or whatever. I've always had a very generally positive view of people. And mm. I, I've seen or I've um, conceived of the socialist project too, especially from sort of a feminist perspective, as something that encourages humankind's best impulses which are always there. And I mean, I think Angela also had a very good point about taboo on this, where it's like, well, you know, taboo is a very good um, kind of social shortcut. Mm. People um, don't necessarily spend all their time doing critical thinking about about um, sort of social or cultural ethics. And taboo is, is a nice way to say, well, I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to be bad. I'll just kind of, you know avoid these very bad things and uh you know that that will uh, prevent me from doing harm to others i don't know i mean it, there is kind of a uh a kind of moral elitism to some of that stuff where it's like well there's a very precious few who are good mm. but i think most people are good or would be good at the very least given the chance mm. people are generally benevolent and and i i like us you know? Yeah, and actually, most people are nicer than uh, than a lot of political nerds. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that, I say that, that as a political that, nerd, but like that's an understatement. I mean, yeah. I, I, I have to tell you, uh, there's some of the most cruel and inhumane treatment I've ever received in my entire fucking life yeah. has come from that that far left. Uh, and uh, for and fuck's sake, like I was on, you know, I was on sports teams and I was hazed and all the rest, you know, all the kind of like teasing and just cruelty that you get, you know, grow, coming up in school and whatnot. But no, that just pales by comparison yeah. uh, to the treatment that, that I think all of us, all three of us for sure mm. have received on the far left. And actually when I was in the midst of that, one thing I really did as a kind of therapy was like I would regularly go home and visit my parents in the countryside because they just live in a world where everyone's really nice, you know, and people just, you know, um, everyone says hello to each other. And, um, you know, like if anyone was cruel in some way, it would be just a terrible social faux pas and it would be like punished socially in some way, way, you know, Mm -hmm. because people would judge you as like that person isn't a kind person. And like, it's sort of amazing because like, you know, the countryside is like ruled by this very, by this kind of gentleness that people have, you know, and I just thought, God, these people are like so much nicer than, um, than the, the, the very, you know, morally sanctimonious people that you sometimes meet in political circles. Yeah, I definitely, uh, like of the same thing with like, 
my mother and trying to sort of explain these things to her and someone enjoying the screwed up face that she makes when she's like, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever. And of course, like, at like small communities and, uh, you know, the countryside is like subtly imp- oppressive yes. in horrifying yeah, yeah, yeah. ways. Mm. Um, but this idea of a, a general kindness and of, um, I guess an extreme, uh, uh, aversion to malice mm. is like, that's a, that's a decent human impulse. Mm. And I definitely, um, you know, whatever I've, I, I, I love a bon mot. I love a roast. Um, but I, to me, there was always a difference between, uh, you know, roasting someone and, and starting a pile on. And one of the reasons I, I left Twitter is I realized I couldn't make a, um, you know, a joke or mm. something about someone being silly or stupid or frivolous, uh, without a bunch of people being like, yeah, we've all decided that this person is evil now. And it's like, holy shit, calm down. Mm-hmm. It accelerates too quickly. It's mm. a, um, the medium actually, uh, shapes the communication. Mm. All right, Angela. So we're coming out out of uh, 2017, which has been uh, deemed Nagel mania by some of your fans and your followers and your haters as well. There are many of those. Um, your your book Kill All Normies has just been a sensation in a lot of ways, for better or for worse. You've gotten a lot. Of, you've received a lot of uh, positive and negative reviews of the book. Um, uh, I don't know what what has that experience been like. What what has it been like riding that roller coaster of uh, you know lefty uh, micro celebrity, I should say. Um, it definitely goes very against my character, I suppose, in the sense that I don't actually like, I don't relish attention. Uh, it makes me very anxious, even if it's positive. You know, I, I I'm not someone who thinks kind of like, uh, you know, um, that it, you know, it, it, it's all good ultimately. And that, you know, um, so that, Oh, Angela Nagel, uh, seven nation army chant, uh, doesn't, doesn't work for you. <laughs> no, of course I do like that. But some part of me is, is embarrassed, you know, and like I, sure, sure. Uh, any attention makes me, makes me anxious and embarrassed. And when it turns out to be good, that's a really wonderful thing. And like, I can't, uh, thank and, enough the people who were you know reached out and were really nice and said positive things about about the books and things that I had written uh but certainly the critics are louder uh I suspect they're smaller in number but louder and they did certainly kind of um yeah make life very difficult for a certain period of time uh but but ultimately, you probably can't say anything interesting unless you go through that. Right. It seems like if, if you're not getting a little bit of a backlash, you're, yeah, you're probably not doing anything worthwhile. Mm. Uh, it's safe to say that. I mean, one, one of the strange things was that, you know, I wrote a book which was like about 80% dedicated to critiquing the right, we'll say, the, the, the old right and the old light and the whole kind of Trumpian internet right uh, and about 20% of it was like an internal critique of the left and the criticism was like the reverse about 80% of the criticism was from the left right. was from the cultural left who I think were on the defensive because their own words were reflected back to them 
their own cruel behavior was reflected back to them. Their own petty uh, kind of politics was. And they were, you know, obviously not happy about that. And uh, they don't want, they, they want to make an example of anyone who tries to reimagine kind of what the left could be without them. Um, and so that's why they tried to make an example of me, I think. Um, and yeah, that that wasn't nice. But actually, I don't really care anymore. I'm, I'm not that bothered by it. I mean, um, tonight, as we're recording, it should be on right now, actually, a, a documentary based on the book is um, uh, airing. And you know, I have, again, it's it's primarily critical of the right, but probably most of the backlash I'll get will be from the left. But who knows? I mean, um, certainly the kind of manosphere people are quite nasty and vicious, and they're normally too stupid. They're not really clued into kind of current debates and stuff like that in the way that the alt-right are, who are smart and in a different way. Um, but, yeah, I have I haven't really been attacked by the right that much. Yeah, so to be to clarify, uh, Nando Vila, who's been on my show uh, talking about the Spanish uh, situation uh, several months ago, is uh, producing a documentary for Fusion TV. It's in the Trumpland series. It's called Kill All Normies, and you were interviewed for that. Amber was interviewed for that. Um, I was generously uh, given uh, access to that beforehand by Nando, and um, I'm going to be playing some excerpts throughout the episode as uh, as it makes sense and so folks should uh, check that out from fusion tv um how did what'd you make of that i mean is it weird to, to have your book to have your work uh, turned into a, a fucking documentary what, what was that process like and and what kind of uh, reach do you think that's going to have uh, to to you know extend your message in the politics you're trying to put forward well, I, I did an interview with ABC and stuff like that, so it may have a very broad audience. I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's a mini-doc. Like, it's a TV hour, which is 40 to 45 minutes, something like that. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a very condensed version of things, and you don't get the the level of nuance that you would always like and so on. But it's... Yeah, it's very good. I mean, Amber is in it. Uh, Adolf Reed, who I really love, is in it. Um, Mike Cernovich is in it, who's kind of <laughs> hilarious in a way. He he really does, like, the, the the guys who recorded it were kind of saying, there's something, like, a little bit charming about the guy. Like, he, he does, um, he, he doesn't, he, he lets his guard down, if you like. So there were other people in it, like Lucian Wintrich, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. Um, huh. Who was, you know, a much more guarded kind of figure. Um, and I actually interview uh, Richard Spencer in it too. So yeah. that will be controversial probably. Yeah. So you're a very bad person now. I don't know. Well, I should no platform you, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, I argued with him, you know, <laughs> it's not like I was sitting there agreeing with him. I'm looking forward to that section. I haven't gotten through all of that just yet. So uh, that's going to be really great. Uh, looking forward to that a lot. Nagel Mania should continue well into the future. All right. So we've we've broke down, at least to the best of our ability or anyone's ability, I would say, uh, the dirtbag left. It is a moving target. It's highly contestable. I'm sure listeners of the show will uh, send me a whole b- a barrage of uh, 
uh, complaints or concerns or suggestions about how we should have framed the dirtbag left differently. That, and that's to an extent uh, the, the beauty of the concept. It, a lot of people, a lot of different kinds of people have very strongly identified with that concept, right? So it means a lot of things to a lot of people. And so it's impossible for us to cover all of them. But really what we're trying to do is trace the trajectory to the socialist left of today. So I want to put both of you in the hot seat and give us a quick spiel for the vision uh, for the kind of socialist left you would like to see uh, coming out of the vampire castle uh, that uh, Mark Fisher so presciently uh, saw, you know, uh, several years ago. I mean, I think uh, the one thing about the vampire castle at this point is that you can leave. Like there are people outside of it now. No, I mean, it's true though. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I have like an advice column for the baffler and like literally once a week I get, some email from someone saying like, I don't care about these campus politics things. Like I don't, you know, I'm happy to, you know, follow whatever etiquette, but it really bothers me that people are purged for not knowing it. Um, the presumption that what we're doing is reproducing culture, uh, is very alienating to me. I, you know, these people are all over the place. I think some of it is that you, do kind of need to be a little brave and be like, actually, like, this is what I believe. And I think what you're doing is, um, you know, subcultural and, and bullying and cruel. And I, and I don't believe in it. Um, of course, Fisher did that and (laughs) yeah, Yeah. didn't end well for him. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm a lot more, um, robust and uh you know i i draw fire pretty quick um (laughs) so i i mean i don't know i i think people are kind of waking up to the idea that these people are a distraction and eventually you know we will eclipse them which is what happened during the sanders campaign Mm. you know people got involved with something because it had you know uh concrete class politics Mm. it was not a subculture it was not a culture at all like Mm. it was just like people are struggling, and 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 that's entirely uh, unnecessary. Mm. I I don't know. I mean, I I don't concern myself too much with this stuff because there's like 200 people on Twitter who gives a shit. They're losers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Unfortunately, though, I do think that because the mainstream media is kind of always chasing the fringes and always chasing what's happening online, those relatively small number of people still manage to influence things in a kind of worrying way. So, I mean, I guess I just think one of the things I loved about Sanders was like the, the very relentless bread and butterness of it all, you know? Uh, I mean, Corbyn has this quality as well, the, the socialist granddad thing. And that is not just an affectation or or just a, like a, a, an aesthetic thing. That that is a statement of kind of normalcy in a way of a sense that like you know you want to get to a point where any normal person who basically agrees with the fundamental kind of economic principles that will you know, help to actually improve their lives and challenge people who have massive economic power. 
that those people will feel comfortable actually coming into the left, but also the people who already know about the left will feel comfortable that they are not wasting their time in organizations that will denounce them if they accidentally say the wrong thing once. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a real problem. Like, And I feel that myself. I kind of think, you know what, I mean, look at the way in which people who gave decades of their lives have just been thrown under the bus by a bunch of fucking 20-year-olds mm-hmm. who've mm-hmm. decided that they have engaged in wrong think now. You know, and I, I just think that's disgusting. My that- big thing was Jane County. Like, when I was still writing about, when I was still writing about dirtbag arts and culture for Dangerous Minds, mm. uh, Jane County, one of, like, the early, like, trans-punk people of, like, the kind of New York Warhol scene. And, you know, she's just like this, you know working class redneck woman who transitioned very early before anyone ever did that. And she made a status update that was like, I'm having a party and all my trannies are invited. And someone reported her for the use of tranny. Mm. She was at Stonewall all three days. Mm. She got her Facebook suspended for the use of the word tranny as self-identified tranny. Mm. Mm. And I I don't know. I, I don't believe in throwing people under the bus especially when they did their like what you have a fucking twitter account with a rose all three days at stonewall this bitch yeah all yeah, three yeah. days fuck you right. yeah 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 absolutely it's just a brazen disregard of like historical context too because like you know uh, yeah i mean uh, she was a, a a prime there's there's a there have been many articles written uh, defending this woman and in, in that and that her legacy uh about a certain kind of like uh, experimental, like I say, people use this word queerness in this really fucked up, really kind of weird yeah. sort of way nowadays. But like that's she was really queering shit up in those. Yeah, in yeah. Those, and there was it, when it was really like, uh, uh, like a yeah, a really. She was very anti, kind of even the the what we would recognize as queer hegemony now. And she's like, oh no, I don't give a shit about that stuff. She's like, yeah. I just wanted tits. I thought it was hot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're just like, you know what? I definitely remember that experience. <laughs> there's a, there's an aspect of just like, yeah, rebelliousness that isn't for the sake of, you know, performativity or, or getting snaps and clicks from your, from your click or your subculture. Right. It's just, but also, of- I mean, when the, when this stuff really matters, you will get pushback. Like, um, and you need to know that you have, that other people in your movement have your back. Mm-hmm. And right now, because this culture still kind of lingers, despite very good efforts to stop it, um, th- there is this kind of anti-solidarity culture, which is about kind of reveling in destroying the people who have done their time, you know, yeah, and yeah. who have really earned their right to speak on certain things. I mean... All, you, you know, you can give a thousand examples, but like one that comes to mind is like Chomsky being critical of Antifa, you know, I oh, mean, shit, yeah. you know, I mean, the guy, I mean, come on, <laughs> how much more time can you give uh, in your life? You know, and Norman Finkelstein is another one, you know, mm-hmm. a brilliant. I mean, I'm not particularly invested in the way that he is um, and in the way that a lot of people I know are in the... Um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but, you know, he's someone you want on your side. Like, uh, he was just an absolute warrior 
Uh, and the fact that people would just go, oh, he said something critical about BDS, gone. Mm-hmm. He's he's yeah. not allowed now. We're, he's not one of us. Cast he's him out. Non grata. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he's yeah, slightly gotten away with well. it because he and Chomsky have gotten away with it a bit more because they're they don't you know they're not younger people online and they're not like very plugged into this stuff. And so the people who want to hurt them, who typically want to hurt people who are dissenters in any way, know that they can't really reach them. Whereas I think if you're sort of our age, they know that they can. And they, you know, like one thing I often experienced, um, if I ever dissented on any issue, I would always get people, usually with anonymous accounts, um, leftists saying, you will never recover from this. Your career is over. This kind of stuff. Mm. And I'm just like, you know what? Every time I get one of these, I have a moment of, God, what if they're right? And then someone emails me from like a major publication asking me to write for them. So, you know, I just think like they're trying to scare you because they know that if the taboo is broken, their whole thing will collapse. And I just think people have to be more courageous Stop leaving it up to the handful of people who always speak out and, like, everyone say it, you know. Yeah, and bravery is contagious, Mm. you know. That's the big thing. I wanted to have the two of you on the show because you're very brave. You're forging a different kind of path. And uh, I have a lot of people in my audience, uh, particularly patrons, longtime listeners who, who are looking for the kind of lead. They're looking for the kind of moral support uh, that, that, that folks like you, uh, bring to the table. And I just wanted to get this out there. I was talking about having Chomsky on my show. I converse with him. We, we, uh, we corresponded rather, and uh, I'm still going to have him on at some point. He was just really busy and bogged down at the, at the time that he wrote that op-ed, um, critiquing Antifa. But people will come at me and they'll say, well, Adam, don't you know that Chomsky has this in this politics? Like, and it's like, yes, I do know. And I think, Angela, you've received a lot of this, and Amber, I'm sure, as well. People presume that when you defend people like uh, Chomsky or Finkelstein or whomever, whoever is the latest persona non grata on the far left, right? They'll presume that you just don't know enough about this or that thing, and if you did, you would see how bad of a person they are. Yeah. And and that's just fucking – first of all, that's that's very patronizing. Uh, and, and probably with the two of you experienced that as misogyny, I would say the presumption that you're just not smart enough or you haven't read enough. Oh yeah. Um, the, the, yeah. There's nothing like the, uh, the pseudonymous male feminist Twitter people to really be nasty with the w- female dissenters. There's yeah. absolutely, Oh God, they, Abs- they are worse absolutely. than the right. They hands hate down. dissenting yeah. women so much more than they yeah. hate like a nominally sexist men. Yeah. so much more. Also, I would say like my first um, kind of social interaction with uh, with George was him saying, "Hey, you know this person you're Facebook friends with is you know bad because of X Y Z," and I'm like, "I am an adult woman. Who mm. the shit are you? I have never spoken to you before. Mm. Like, how dare you presume? Like, I'm just warning you, little girl. Mm. Go fuck yourself, yeah. you nerd." Yeah, yeah, and like I said, I'm sure the two of you. I don't want to sound off on that too much without acknowledging that the two of you experienced that much more severely, and there's a lot of misogyny attached to it. But I will nonetheless get people who reach out to me. Sometimes, you know, whatever, being just douchebags about it. But sometimes also sympathetically, where they say, Adam, you defended this person, and well, you should probably know that this thing happened. And it's like, motherfucker, I do know, mm. I do know, yeah. and I don't 
care. You know, like my own academic work is very pedantic and very particularistic and very intellectually sectarian because that's what we all do, right? We all think we're right. That's why we spend our time writing about it. But politics is a very different kind of enterprise. I don't want to be inwardly facing. Mm. I, the whole world is my world. I don't care about this stupid left ghetto. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So people might be, you know, concerned that we didn't talk enough about specific Twitter feuds. And a lot of the questions that I have that I'm going to air on the B side are much more slanted in that direction. So we're going to sign off now. We've been talking long enough and we're going to spend a little bit longer over on the B side talking about uh, some of the specific questions and concerns that some listeners had for the two of you. Uh, you're both very widely and broadly knowledgeable in a lot of topics. And so, uh, you know, we, 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 we've had a lot to say in this hour. So thanks so much, uh, both of you, for, for joining me here on the A side of uh, Dead Punnets this week. No thanks. problem. Bye. And that's our show, everybody. Thanks again to Amber and Angela for joining me for that fascinating discussion. Patrons, be on the lookout in the next couple of days. There's going to be a B-side to this episode that's going to be dropping around the weekend sometime. It's a Q&A with Angela and Amber. They got to many of your questions. We talked more in depth about the culture wars, building the anti-culture warrior left, the socialist project, and the, you know, the, the kind of uh, interaction and intersection of culture and politics. So you're not going to want to miss that, folks. Angela and Amber are just spitting brilliance. I love these women. I do. I'm, I'm uh, inspired by them. They, they nod me on the head every now and then when I need it. And, uh, and it's a really productive, uh, discussion every time we get our heads together. So I have fun. Thanks everybody for tuning in uh, next week. I've got more socialism for regular ass people. We're going to be breaking down the history and legacy of the Russian revolution and what it means for today's socialist project with Adner Usmani. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...